Thanks for listening to RQ's Device Love Podcast. You're about to listen to an audio only version of our weekly show, Device Love Live. If you're interested in having your questions answered live on a future episode, visit rqteam.com to see what topics are coming up and to register. We hope you enjoy this panel discussion, and if you do, please subscribe. First question. Uh, what are you finding to be the biggest challenges for our IVD clients in the transition to IVDR? You want to start, Ibum? Okay, Lisa. I think the biggest challenge for IVD clients right now is kind of getting their minds around the extent of requirements under the MDR. I mean, lest we forget, 30% of IVD clients today don't have any notified body involvement. This is going to be upended. Under the MDR, about 70% will now have to deal with notified bodies, in particular for those small to medium-sized enterprises who now find their devices, say, in class C or D. I mean, it's almost equivalent to going from zero to 100 in a split second. It's a huge mountain f- for them to climb. So I think these are some of the challenges we are seeing right now. Mm-hmm. Ron, what do you think? Yeah, that's a good start. I mean, I think uh, companies that haven't worked with notified bodies are in for uh, a treat or maybe a surprise. But um, and, and it's not to say that self-declared products haven't... Uh, been documented or, you know, the companies haven't been doing some of the uh, required testing and so on, but um, it jumps up so many levels that, um, you know, they're going to have to really be prepared. So, you know, having that, having that knowledge, having a a regulatory strategy, Mm -hmm. um, having the right people in place to kind of execute that is, um, is a long hill to climb. Okay. Justin, how about you? Um, so those are obviously all good, good, good start here. Uh, I think, and from my experience, especially with Siemens too, um, I, I think resourcing is a bit going to be a big challenge um, if it's not already, uh, especially with um, COVID happening now. A lot of um, staff are, are now working from home, um, at least for for the time being. And I think that a, a lot of times for for companies, they're going to be splitting their time to do IVDR work. Um, some bigger companies may have dedicated staff, but I think that is a challenge uh, to, to try and prioritize this mm-hmm. over existing projects and products in development uh, and to know, you know, how to prioritize this, you know, with the, with the deadline uh, coming. All right. Round us out, Nancy. <laughs> yeah, I think um, and this is going to go a little more technical in in that the the performance evaluation reports and having to do PERs for all these products is kind of a new space and there's a lot of debate. We see it even within companies and between companies. How much detail do I need? How in depth do I need to go? Do I set the bar too high by doing too much the first time around Um, or not, right? Or is the expectation really that high? And and I think a lot of fear and unknown around those and how much Mm -hmm. they have to do with them. I think another area that's been a struggle um, is economic operators and just understanding that network of people mm-hmm. that you rely on in the supply chain to get your product to market. So how far along do you think IVD companies should be in this process by now? What do you think, Ron? Oh, well, you know, at this point, they should have at least um, done a gap assessment, you know, to their quality system and they're going through their product 
portfolio to see which products they feel are worthwhile and um, you know getting up to IVDR and which ones may not be you know based on sales or other factors so they should have at least done that um, have a quality plan in place you know start looking at your QMS get that all in place first because that's that's what's going to drive your compliance so having all those procedures and roles and responsibilities um, assigned to the right people that those things should be underway or some of them should even be completed by now. Mm-hmm. What about you, Nance? Yeah, I think um, you definitely should have identified who you're going to be work with as your notified body, particularly if that's a new adventure for you. Um, the process to do an application is really a lot more complex than I think people give it credit. They think, oh, I'm just going to call them. I'm going to get a contract in place. I'm going to have my notified body. And it's really not that simple. You have to categorize and, and list all your products and classify them in, in that whole application process. And then you got to negotiate a contract. This is not cheap for manufacturers. This is, and if you haven't dealt with a notified body before, you're in for a little bit of a shock when that you get that invoice or you get that contract in place and you realize how much it's going to cost for each of these products. And I think it's going to force you to go back what Ron was talking about and reassess your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it really profitable to take some of these products to market in the EU? Um, So I think that's a place... I think, you know, I'd like to see people that have gone beyond just the gap assessments and actually created a tech doc example complete, right? Do one, figure out it. It's going to tell you so much more than your gap assessment. You're going to find, gosh, I really thought I had everything, but when I have to go put it down in a new tech doc or I have to write a PER, I find maybe that test was done on an earlier version of this device and maybe it doesn't play anymore. Or I did it to an old standard and that doesn't work anymore. Or I didn't have enough of a sample size or something changed in manufacturing. Or I've got hazardous material. So I think really just if you haven't done one yet, it's time to do one right now. Get that done. Are the notified bodies looking at them yet? Like, are they taking pilots? You know, so many aren't even designated. Is there a way to get your file looked at? Ebum? Yes. I mean, right now, I know notified bodies are beginning to accept um, applications under the IVDR. And um, yeah, they're gearing up. I mean, those that are designated, unfortunately, to date, only about three have been designated in EU 27 member states. So, but the hope is that more will be designated over the next 12 months. So what, what should you be doing if your notified body isn't designated yet? Have a very, very frank and honest conversation with them. Don't let them fob you off. And if they are not answering your questions to your satisfaction, I think you should right now start considering applying to one of the notified bodies that have been designated. Yeah, the, you know, the X factor is that from the notified body side, um, they're not obligated to do business with anybody. So if they get, mm-hmm. if they start looking at pilot submissions or, you know, they they start looking into companies that they potentially want to do business with and they feel it's too much of a risk or maybe they don't have quite the competency mm-hmm. to deal with that company and that product line, then, you know, they they don't have to do business with anybody. So even under MDR, we saw that where companies were being kind of turned down or just ignored by notified bodies because they just didn't want to do business with a particular company. Wow. Ibum, how far along do you think people should be in the transition? I was started by working backwards from the date of application. 
which is May 2022. So at mm-hmm. this point, I think you should be putting finishing touches to your QMS. And then to Nancy's point earlier, sort out your products. Um, products are going to be sampled. So find out which ones will be in class A, B, C, D. Those that are, some of them that are in B and C will be subjected to sampling per the guidance document MDCG 2019-13. So you've got to know that because for that initial assessment, they'll be looking at the entire quality management system and the notified body will then select one device from device category or a generic device group. So you've got to be aware of these things and work towards that. Again, to Nancy's suggestion, at least have that first one done already because you will learn a lot. Typically, manufacturers develop a template and apply it across their product range. So any feedback, any early feedback will help you in making amends further down the line. Here's a, a question from the audience. This is in the <clears throat> excuse me, the chat, so I'll have to read it to you guys. Um, he says, I'm noticing much discussion on PERs, etc. However, what I'm interested in is understanding your beliefs and similarities with the OIVD FDA requirements. In practice, much of that required by the FDA is really similar to what is now required by Europe. I'm in conclusion, I believe much experience can be gained by looking at the FDA website, guides, etc. What is your belief on how they compare? Anybody want me to start, Justin, or you want to start? Right. So I I can probably speak a little bit to this. Um, So I think that there is a lot of similarities. Certainly, you know, if you're used to IVDD compliance, uh, there's some differences there, especially in that um, the IVDR or sorry, the IVDD is list based. And now we're going to a risk classification system. So if you've done a lot of work in classifying, um, doing assessments uh, for FDA, um, looking for predicate devices or maybe doing like de novo submissions. Um, it, it's going to look a little bit more like that now for IVDR um, and, you know, for countries that have been marketing in U.S. and EU. Um, I, I think that there, there is some, a lot of value there in taking your U.S. strategy uh, and kind of using that as a guideline um, to go ahead with IVDR. Yeah, I would agree, right? It's good science. If you have good science, right. then writing it isn't as hard. Um, where I think people are struggling is, you know, maybe I did that for FDA because I got clearance a long time ago. And so maybe that evidence isn't as current or the equipment has changed for that test system now. Like, have I really updated it? Have I Mm -hmm. kept it current or not? Um, Or because I got it through FDA, it's just kind of been sitting on my shelf and isn't current. Um, So I think that's one I think the other is there's a lot of manufacturers in the U.S. that don't necessarily go through FDA. They take advantage mm-hmm. of, you know, doing it as a laboratory-developed test. And so, therefore, they haven't had that third-party regulatory oversight on the data. Um, so, you, those people might be in for some surprises when they get into writing a PER. Right. Um, comment, comment from the audience adding on to this. Um, from one of the right directors in an IVD company is that the nuance with IVDs is it's expected that you have a medical purpose or clinical utility within your intended purpose statement. 
it's not being accepted in the EU anymore to just say this detects target X and stop there. So, yeah, that can be really hard to prove, right? <laughs> but it does. I can measure this inflammatory marker or this enzyme, but does that really translate to heart attacks? You know, that is not, there's so many confounding factors in doing that clinical study. Um, and the sample sizes start to get really large and the follow-up time tends to be a long time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really hard to gather that evidence. Her uh, other comment back to the previous question on where people should be at. says BSI just issued updated guidance on how to structure the technical documentation. And it has really changed the priority of deliverables we've been working on. And the application process is complex. You need to know the entire portfolio classification and intended purposes under the IVDR to set the sampling plan and get a quote. So that's interesting too. Yeah, on the difficulties. Okay, so with limited resources, right? Everybody has limited resources right now. Where should you focus? How do you prioritize? Justin, you wanna take a crack at that? Right. Um... That that's tough. I mean, it, you, everybody should have a plan in place right now. Um, everybody should be sort of executing to that plan. Uh, I think every you know companies who are working on IBDR really need to sort of check, uh, sort of continually monitor themselves of how they're doing. You know, we shouldn't be planning for delays or things like that. Um, if you're not, you know, executing to your plan, um, you know, it's probably time to look at sort of staffing and and how you you know how how your resource in order to address, you know, whatever your needs are. Uh, it's probably time to look at things like um, budgets if you need to address clinical evidence, things like that. So, so yeah, um, you know, this is, this, is a, this is a tough question to answer for everybody because everybody's probably in a slightly different state. But, um, you know, I think we, we kind of touched on a little bit before where I think, I think there's a lot of value in, in companies taking one product to sort of uh, uh, through their plan uh, doing a PER to understand how it's going to impact uh, other products, and you know this this will tell you if if your plan is good, right? Because you theoretically should be able to kind of scale the work that was done for that one um, across your product line. Um, so, so I think if you haven't done that exercise yet, that that's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Ron, what do you think? Where would you focus? Yeah, I mean, I would start right with regulatory. You know, identify that person. Uh, responsible for regulatory compliance, um, get that person to kind of lead the charge through the company, you know, in terms of understanding the requirements, what's the best way to to develop a plan for your product and your company to meet those requirements. And, you know, I would start there and, you know, develop the competencies, you know, identify who are the right people, you know, extend that out to your economic operators, um, you know, because those things typically take time, you know, and with the economic operators, I mean, it, it's not that companies don't have an authorized rep or a distributor or an importer, but now with the requirements being so much more prescriptive under the IVDR for their responsibilities and things that they have to do, um, it's, it's a good idea to get that started soon as well. So similar to MDR, do you think people are stalling? Like, are they waiting and banking on delays? We saw, we saw so much of that. We've heard whisperings, but I don't think yeah. you want to bet on that. Because there are whisperings? Yes. Like it could happen? The word on the street. But I don't think it is mm. because, I mean, you have people like MedTech Europe trying to push for it, um, trying to make a case for the fact that it's much more uh, involved, um, COVID-19, the usual reasons. But what we've got to keep in mind is, this is to do with the European Commission who have 
their political masters to serve. And politicians don't like to change their minds. I mean, they were the ones that was pushing for uh, the regulations. So I wouldn't bet on that. If I were betting, if I were betting person, Lisa, I'll bet you 50 bucks that that is not a <laughs> And I will not bet my house on it, I tell you. So yeah, you're I, not risking much there. <laughs> so I think it would be best to err on the side of caution. Let's all work on the basis that the date of application remains 2022. And if, if things happen nearer the time, like we found mm-hmm. on the MDR side of the house, and they decide to give us an extended uh, period of grace, then we'll take it. But for now, I think we should work to the original dates. What do you think, Ron? What are you hearing? Yeah, I think it's best to um, be conservative on that and, and plan for the dates. You know, I, I, I had the impression that um, they kept the two implementations two years apart to give, you know, so if MDR had started this year, that would give you a full year to do all the initial certifications and then you could start looking at, you know, some of the surveillance activities and that would give you enough time to to iron out, you know, some of the issues. And because, you know, once the notified bodies hear from the competent authorities and the other accrediting organizations, you know, they're going to start to change their focus. And with a shorter time, um, there's not going to be as much of a learning curve from lessons learned from MDR to apply to IVDR. But that being said, um, you know, it, it's I wouldn't bank on any any delays uh, until, you know. It gets really close. <laughs> Here's a interesting. Oh, go ahead, Nance. Yeah, I I was thinking even if you, right, <laughs> even if you're not, you think you can get done right by the deadline of 2022, you will find a hiccup on that road. Mm-hmm. There's gonna be something mm-hmm. that's gonna delay it. You know, there are people that right. We're looking forward to their audit, their QMS audit to start the process in. Those have all been delayed because of COVID. Now, no one could have predicted that. And I don't know what's going to be your hiccup in the road. But somewhere between now and May of 2022, something is going to go wrong. And it's going to take you twice as long as you thought. You know, so I, if it were me, I'd still be shooting for that target. And if that delay comes the month before, right, which they tend to come really late in the cycle, then maybe you can exhale, right? (laughs) And you've got to get over that hump. And, and let's not forget, even if the commission has a contingency plan in mind, that's no way they're going to share with the public. They're going to wait till near the deadline to Nancy's point and maybe a month or whatever before the deadline and then come up with that plan B. So, yes, it's best to err on the side of caution and work on the basis that the date will remain May 2022. Here's a question from the audience. On the date of application of IVDR, can all COVID-19 test kits, IVDD compliant, be sold until the end of stock or removed totally from the market? So there's going to be a difference, right? Whether it's already on the market, right? And you're asking to pull it back or not. The other is COVID is such a public health emergency. That is one nice thing that the IVDR has. And actually, people would like to see the one provision brought in that allow in the case of a public health emergency, um, you could go to your competent authority. The competent authority could authorize that product, even if it's not CE marked. And then they can take that to the European Commission and the European Commission 
um, can issue an emergency implementing act to allow it to stay on the market. That being said, we're still two years away. So if there are alternatives and there are CE marked, right, you kind of lose that argument of it's now a public health emergency because you have had two years to get it ready to go under that. Um, so I, my take is there are people getting it ready. Mm -hmm. There are people working on their 510Ks. There are people working on getting their CE mark. And so making that public health emergency that there's nothing else available gets a little bit harder on that date of application. Okay, here's another audience question. Sell-off provision. Come May 2022, all these self-certified IVDs have to be where in the supply chain in order to sell off in uh, second half 2022-2023. So they have to be in on the market in the European Union, oh. right? So if you have an importer or a distributor in the EU, then you would want to have your inventory at those locations. Um, prior to that May 2022 date. Um, I think what makes it a lot harder for the IVDs over the medical devices is that the expiry dates tend to be shorter. So you may have something with a very short expiration date that if you put it on the market, it, it's gonna force the end sale date quicker than the regulation itself would force that expiration date. Okay, here's our next one. What happens if companies are not able to meet the May 2022 deadline? Want that one, Ibum? Well, they will stay on the IVD track. What, is, what does that mean? Well, when does that... Oh, on the IVD track. Yes. Yeah, what does that mean? Um, they will stay until that comes to an end in um, 2024, after which they must take products off the market. Yeah, that's or, if they have a certificate, right? So for all these yeah, ones... I'm, I'm assuming they have a certificate that has an expiration date at least up to May 2024. Yeah, but if not, they're out of luck come yeah. May 2022. <laughs> so uh, if let's see. What have you found that surprised you in trying to transition to IVDR? You want to start, Nancy? Yeah, I think that... Economic operators in that entire supply chain, there's so many people that are, are purchasing reagents, purchasing things, the whole importer, who's importing it, where are they importing it, who's distributing all these products. That really, for a lot of IVD companies, is a really tangled web because um, they're not necessarily making all those reagents themselves. They're getting them from different places. They're being shipped into different places. Um, and just sorting out and defining even who is my importer versus who's my distributor um, and making sure that they have all those requirements. I think that's been more of a struggle than we would have anticipated. But you, Justin. Right. So um, I think uh, one of the biggest surprises uh, from, from when I was uh, with Siemens is just how many products um, are going to or will, will need to be submitted for review versus how many products were submitted under IVDD. Um, and obviously I, I don't think that, I think most, most companies who are in the IVD space understand that now. Um, but go back a little bit when, when IVDR was, when they we were trying to wrap our heads around it. Um, 
I, I think that was definitely the biggest surprise is, is trying to understand how much more of a, a regulatory burden is now going to be on companies in who want to market in the EU for, for products, if, especially companies that have a really large product portfolio um, with a lot mm-hmm. of IVD tests, you know, a large IVD test menu, right? So, you know, if you have, you know, we had over a thousand uh, individual IVD products and you know, if, if 20% of them or 10% of them were, were getting reviewed before and now, so, you know, 80% of them are getting reviewed, um, you know, that's a, that's a big jump. Uh, and that's, that's a big shock to a lot of companies. And, and so, uh, you know, so like I said, my experience, that, that was the biggest surprise. Ron? Well, I see that the, um, the labeling requirements are a lot more specific and detailed So, you know, and when you think of systems that have maybe an analyzer and reagents and buffers and controls and all these multiple levels and based on how they're packaged and sold either together or separately, um, that causes a lot of, um, you know, confusion. And I think it's going to take a lot of diligence to identify, you know, what information goes on this label and what information can I put on the other label without repeating it? And then you throw UDI into the mix where that, that all has to be added in as well. And I think um, it's going to take a real um, concerted effort, a lot of diligence to to weed through that and identify the labeling for all those components. Here's a question from the audience, um, similar to the what we covered the last question. I believe that the concept of virtual manufacturer or OEM manufacturer will cause a major concern. What are your thoughts? Nancy, you want to add that on to what you were talking about? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So right? Understanding that if you're putting your name on the product, right? Unlike the US where you can private label anything and you just tell FDA what names it's being sold under, and it's not really a big deal. In Europe now under the IVDR, if you put your name on it as a manufacturer, you have to have all the technical documentation to support that. There is no private label or um, OEM manufacturer, all those things. You're really deciding if your name's on it, you own it and all the responsibilities that go with it. And so I think it's really going to upend the industry in a way mm-hmm. where so much is is purchased and repackaged or relabeled and sold under someone else's name. Mm-hmm. All that goes away. You have a much more transparency of who actually manufactured or who owns that product. If I could just chime in here, Nancy. Mm-hmm. The concept of a virtual manufacturer has always existed in Europe. The one that was deleted was Bone Brown Private Labeling. And to your point, I think the key here is understanding that in the in Europe, the definition of a legal manufacturer is that legal entity that places the device on the market. You are allowed to delegate tasks to third parties, but you must maintain control over services or activities those third parties conduct on your behalf. And those third parties, depending on the criticality of the service they provide to the legal manufacturer, may also be subjected to audits, both announced and unannounced. So it's much more involved. And the whole idea is to make sure you weed out the cowboys. In other words, if you are going to be placing a device on the market, you will be held accountable. So if you're the reg director, what milestones would you set for the end of 2020? You want to start, Evan? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. In 2020, we must make sure that our QMS is almost done. 
we have to go through, we would have gone through our products to make sure we sort them out into what I call ABC piles. Ones that uh, bringing them up to IVDR requirements may become cost prohibitive and we may choose no longer to place them on the market in Europe. Ones that we think we will take to market in the first wave and then others that will follow through. In other words, have your QMS all ready and then have your submission cadence also sorted. Because remember, for that initial and the IVDR audit, they'll be looking at the entire quality management system. And as I said before, we'll choose from one of each of either device category or generic device group. And it is the notified body that will select, not what with not not you telling the notified body what to do. They will look at your product range and say, okay, this is the one we're gonna choose. So you've got to be ready in that regard. Nancy? It, I'm gonna shoot to have my contract signed with my notified body. <laughs> to Ron's point, right? They have a choice of whether they take you on as a client or not. And there's, as Ibum said, there's only three. Um, if you count BSI as one for their two sites, since Brexit's happening. Um, but I'm going to shoot to have that contract in place. All my devices classified. I'm, I'm ready to go. I've got my audit on the schedule. Justin? Um, I, I think by the end of 2020, uh, you should probably have your PRC identified for sure. It's good. I have to add one more. <laughs> you know, I'm not done, right? <laughs> I, I really want to know like what my high risk products are, right? Something that maybe I got to go right. retest or something yes. I'm missing data mm -hmm. on. I don't want to surprise my marketing group in April of 2022 that they're going to lose product on the market. So I really want to know. I want to have done enough work that I can tell them these four products are at risk and you better either do something, spend mm -hmm. some money, or they're going to go away and we need to plan for that. Okay, last question. What does compliance or good enough look like? And how do you align with your notify body on that? When at this point, there are only three notify bodies designated. Like, So how do you get there to good enough? Ebum, you want to start? You're smiling. Yes. I think from the get-go, engage with your notified body. I mean, remember, they're not there to stop you getting on the market. They really want to help you. But you need to help them to help you. So have that open dialogue. Share things with them. They're not going to send you to jail. You know, if you have that open dialogue, of course the notified bodies are not consultants. They're not going to endorse or say this is good, this is not good. But from the way they respond, read between the lines, read the tea leaves, and you know which way the wind is blowing with them. And then, you know, serve it up. Because, and now that um, uh, some of them, uh, we understand, have capacity, this is time to do it. Because when, as the dates get closer and things start to get bunch up, guess what? They may, they may, they, <laughs> they may be less tolerant. So at this point, Use the advantage you have now if you are that prepared. Engage them with the, in those discussions. Make uh, uh, detailed notes of what you're hearing and then execute on it ASAP. 
So, Ron, when you were lead auditor at TV, did you have time for those kinds of discussions? Is it reasonable? Not always. I mean, you know, I, I think the, you know, when you say, you know, what's good enough or what does good look like? Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the one of the red flags was always, you know, if you go into a company and, you know, they're they're going for a new regulatory scheme, like when, you know, when we did MDSAP a few years ago and, you know, if a company comes back and they say, well, we're waiting for you to get here, or we need you to tell us, you know, what we should do, that, that's that's a bad sign. So um, get as much knowledge and training and outside help as you need, um, you know, put together your plan, present it, um, even if even if there's some warts in there and you're not totally sure, you know, show some confidence and, you know, be forward thinking and proactive and not not sit back and wait for um, you know, the notified body to tell you if it's good enough and, you know, don't, don't just go for good enough in terms of, you know, meeting the minimum requirements. Cause that was, that was always frustrating where, you know, you, you probably didn't have enough to write, you know, you knew that it just wasn't robust enough and they didn't really kind of grasp enough of the requirements to make it, you know, mm -hmm. high enough above the bar that, uh, you know, the, the notified body was confident. Justin. Right. So, so certainly what uh, Ron said there, but also, uh, you know, I think I've always in, in the past, I've always utilized feedback from actual submissions as guidance for future submissions. So I think the, the earliest you can actually get a submission in and get feedback from an auditor, um, I, I think you're going to be in, in good shape. And I think you can use that, that feedback you get, you know, this is assuming you're, you know, you're having trouble sitting down with your notified body and actually talking to them, um, and ironing out some of your questions. Um, you know, if you if you get that submission in and they review it, um, you can get some really good feedback that way. So, any final comments, Nancy, on even aligning inside your organization on what good enough is? Yeah, I think right. Sometimes we get so stuck in that that discussion of is this good enough or not, like designate who's going to make the decision, you know, stop, list the three options, list the pros and cons, and then make your decision and live with it. Like you, you don't have time to spin it. The date's coming too fast. Figure out how you're going to make the decision, define that process. That's usually not controversial. And then once you have the process, you can make the decision and go. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. Thanks everyone. That was great.